quotes from the staff where we talk about our point of view and we share the things we're gonna do and we hope you're learning something new because the path to mastering theory begins with you welcome to notes from the staff a podcast from the creators of you theory where we dive into conversations about music theory ear training and music technology with members of the U Theory staff and thought leaders from the world of music education. Hi, I'm Leah Sheldon, head of teacher engagement for U Theory. And I'm Greg Risto, founder of U Theory and associate professor of conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory. Thank you, listeners, for your comments and your episode suggestions. We'd love to read them, so please send them our way by email at notes at utheory.com. And remember to like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be taking a deep dive into the topic of teaching accidentals today, and we're delighted to have Dr. Paula Telesco with us for this. Dr. Telesco is a professor of music theory at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Her research interests include music theory and oral skills pedagogy, analysis of classical and romantic era music, the omnibus progression, Inharmonicism and musical cognition. Her writing has appeared in the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, the Journal of Musicology, and Music Theory Spectrum, among others. Most recently, her chapter on the pedagogy of accidentals was released in the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, edited by Lee Van Handel, who we just spoke with in December. Paula, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're, we're delighted to have you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. You've been teaching at uh, UMass Lowell for, for some time now. What all do you teach there? Um, well, I, I've taught many things. Currently, I'm teaching uh, basic music theory. Um, I also teach the um, uh, non-major uh, music history course. Um, the basic theory I'm teaching right now is for non-majors. Well, they're non-majors. They're also music minors or people who want to get into the music program, but they're not quite ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in a, what we often call fundamentals of music. Exactly. Sorts of things. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And I have to say, I really enjoyed your chapter in uh, Lee Van Handel's uh, Rutledge Companion on teaching accidentals. Uh, it, it reminded me of some things about accidentals that, frankly, I myself had forgotten. Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, there's a lot more to know than you know, certainly then students are aware of the students who come into my class have mostly, you know, some background. And so they already think they kind of know accidentals, but you know, they don't, I mean, they know the basic things about them, but there are all these other things, the niceties of them that they're not aware of. So I wanted to make sure that they, I tell them, you know, this is the best theory deal in town and I'm trying to give them as much information as I can. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the things I've experienced, I'm sure you've experienced as well. And, and Leah, certainly in, in your teaching with, uh, with elementary, middle and high school students, I, I know we've talked about this, uh, is that accidentals can be a really hard topic for uh, students to first grasp. What are some of the things that students struggle with when learning accidentals? Well, it, for my students, the basic concept is not that difficult. It immediately starts getting difficult when you add in E-sharp or C-flat, something like that. And, um, and I tell them throughout the semester, we're going to see why those kinds of notes are necessary. We're not just doing it just for the sake of putting a sharp next to the note E. Um, so the black notes are always the easiest to understand. It could be this, it could be that. And we'll see why. And I tell them, I, I mean, I have lots of silly little analogies that I use. And so I always pick someone sitting in the front row and I say, do you have sisters? Do you have brothers? Do you have parents? Do you have cousins? And so on. And I say, okay, so to their parents, this is their son. To their you know, brother, this is a brother. To their cousin. So this person has different names depending on their relationship to other people. And in the same way, this black note has different names depending on the context, its relationship to the other notes and what 
what key it's in and so on. So I start off kind of with that kind of an explanation. Um, one of the other problems is in the notation, and that's just, you know, to constantly reinforce that the accidentals have to go on the same line or space as the notes. They can't be flying off into outer space because they often are <laughs> being notated way somewhere not close to the note. So that's always an issue that comes up and, um, you know, you have to make them aware that, you know, I, I mean, another thing I tell them too throughout the semester is that the purpose of notation, or at least one of the important uh, purposes, is to make music as easy as possible for the performer. If you have to learn a different system every time you play a piece of music, you're never going to get very good at it. So it has to be very consistent. When someone is reading music, they have to know this is how it looks. And when I see this, this is what I play. I need to know if there's an accidental in front of this note, or I probably am not going to play the right note. So, yeah, Le Leah, you and I were talking, was that just yesterday? We were chatting about, uh, true beginner students when they first see accidentals. And can, can you just say a little bit what you were saying to me yesterday? Cause I thought that was so wonderful. Yes. So, um, I have the opportunity to teach beginning instrumentalists and, um, sometimes their, their very first, um, their mix-up just comes even between identifying between is this a sharp or is this a flat um, and calling accidentally calling an F sharp an F flat um, just some 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 of the very basic terminology or for example that you know sharp F since they see the sharp sign first or flat B um, just getting that down uh, can be a challenge especially for beginners or younger musicians. I also have some students who are older instrumentalists and have played for a couple of years but started on a non-piano instrument and they don't have the keyboard to reference. So sharps and flats, they don't have that vis visualization of the black keys and it doesn't really mean anything to them um, unless we are intentionally explaining to them that G sharp is a half step higher than the note G. So some of those, those very basic things that maybe sometimes we take for granted as musicians um, is really abstract to them. Yeah. I, um, I know that not all my students have access to a piano. I mean, there's pianos in the building and some of them do go and use them. But I always keep pulled up in my bazillion tabs in my, uh, you know, browser because I'm always projecting um, a MIDI keyboard and I post links for them. And I say, you know, you really want to be using this keyboard. And so throughout the semester, I'm always flipping to the keyboard so they can see whatever it is we're talking about, the sharps and the flats and the half steps and whole steps and everything. And that is really very helpful. And what you were saying, Leah, about um, what comes first, I know that if, if a student comes in with, if they've, you know, some of my students are playing in the marching band. So, I mean, they're used to looking at music, but not everyone is. And so, again, I just stress that if the accidental comes after the note, you're going to play the white note before you realize you were supposed to play an accidental. So we read from left to right. We have to see the accidental first if we want to have a fighting chance of playing the right note. <laughs> Absolutely. And I find in most cases the students know what to do. Um, it's just, it's more about that they've memorized what to do rather than actually understanding the theory behind it or the relationships between the notes. So right. I'm always a proponent for um, using the keyboard and referencing the keyboard. Some of my students I inherited without having had that. So it's been fun to go back and reintroduce that. Yeah. 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 It, 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 you definitely, I think we've probably all come across students for whom F sharp means a particular fingering and not necessarily a relationship to notes around it. Right, right. Great. Yeah, now the keyboard is really invaluable for learning all kinds of things. So along those same lines, um, 
even those of us with experience, um, we, we can find that accidentals have delightful edge cases. So what are some of the things that even knowledgeable or more advanced musicians get wrong when writing accidentals? Well, one of the, um, the fussier things is um, certainly an older practice. If you are going from a double sharp to a single sharp, you would put the natural sign first and then the sharp. I realize in a lot of contemporary music that that's no longer the case. Um, so if a person plays lots of contemporary music, you know, they might not be aware that in older music it had been done that way. Um, flats, you just go from a double flat to a single flat. You don't put the natural before it. Um, I will say, even though they're not advanced musicians, probably um, without knowing which accidental goes where, if you have a chord and you're having to write accidentals, a very common problem, at least with my students, is I have to keep reminding them you can't put accidentals on top of each other because you're not going to be able to clearly see which one is which. So the uh, lowest note, that accidental is going to go furthest to the left. If you've just got two notes, then obviously the other one is closest to the note on top. As you start adding notes in, you have to alternate closest, farthest, closest, farthest away. You know, if you had four and notes, for example. Those, yeah, th those, those, those rules are great. They're, they're actually a little more complex than what you describe. I happen to have implemented this for a software program, and so... Ooh. I am. That's that's one of the algorithms I, I love. Um, I don't know. Is it worth talking about it? They're very nerdy, but our listeners might sure, enjoy the nerdiness. Sure, okay. Cause, yeah, because like I know sharps and flats have different. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you, hanging our listeners down can't pieces. see <laughs> hanging down pieces versus pointing up pieces. Exactly. And yeah. so this is. Yeah, this is at the heart of it. That um, so when we talk about like typography and the shape of characters. Uh, some characters have descenders, which are things that go below the line, and some characters have ascenders, which are things that go higher than the, you know, like the lowercase letter standard height. And so when we think about all of our accidentals, um, we have uh, two accidentals that have both ascenders and descenders. That's the uh, sharp sign and the natural sign. Those are the, the tallest accidentals. We have um, two accidentals that have only ascenders, and that's the flat and the double flat. And we have one accidental that has neither an ascender nor a descender, and that's the double sharp. And so the, the rule is that uh, if, you have, uh, if you have a conflict between... Uh, uh, how to do this? Um, at the interval of a seventh, you can have any two accidentals written directly above each other from a seventh or larger, right? So you could have uh, what's one that might actually happen in music at a seventh? For instance, you could have A flat up to G flat uh, with no problem. But you could also have A sharp up to G sharp, obviously much less common in music, uh, even though both have an ascender and both have a descender. Uh, at the interval of a sixth, you can have the upper accidental with no descender and the bottom accidental with an ascender. So for instance, you could have a flat up top and a sharp down bottom. At the interval of a fifth, you can only have, let me just be sure I'm getting this totally right. Um, <laughs> yeah, at the interval- I'm certainly learning something here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, at the interval of the fifth, if the top accidental doesn't have a descender, right? So if it's a flat, a double flat, or a double sharp, and the bottom note has no ascender, that's only the double sharp, then the two can be written together. So effectively, right, at, at the interval of a fifth, uh, it, with double sharps, you can write them together, or a double sharp on bottom and a flat on top, but I can't think of any time we'd ever see a double sharp on bottom and a flat on top in the same chord, heaven help us. So, so that, gives, that, gives us, uh, that gives us writing them for two notes. But then, you know, chords often have more than two notes. And so in that case... Uh, the rule is to start with the highest accidental closest to the note, and then to alternate from highest accidental to lowest accidental going out to the left away from the chord. 
So imagine that we had an F-sharp major chord spelled in close position, like F-sharp, A-sharp, C-sharp. Then the accidental closest to the chord would be that top C-sharp. You go down to the next available lowest accidental, the F-sharp, and then to the A-sharp. Uh, and now if you have if you have a seventh, let's say we had a C-sharp, uh, no, let's pick a better one. Let's pick, because uh, I want an accidental on bottom and and an accidental on top. Oh, my apologies for this, but it'll work. A C flat dominant seventh chord, right? So C flat, E flat, G flat, B double flat. At this point, you can write the C flat and the B double flat, those accidentals directly on top of each other. That still counts as your highest. So next we're going to go to the next available lowest, which would be that E flat. And then the next one out would be the G flat. And so anyway, so that's the, that's the full rough routine. And if anyone is as nerdy about this as I am, the book to read is uh, Elaine Gould, who is the chief typesetter for, um, uh, is she at Boozy or is she at Oxford? She's at one of the major British music houses. Uh, And her book is called uh, Behind Bars, The Definitive Guide to Music Notation. And I, I geek out on this stuff like crazy. So, oh, I'm going to have to check that out. It's it's delightful. It's every every possible edge case you could ever think of. Uh, and she's yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, that was a fun little diversion. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think Paula, for, for me as well, right? It's just a matter of like, especially in music fundamentals, when students are first writing triads and intervals, of just reminding students that you know, if they just know like. If it's anything smaller than a seventh, space those accidentals out to the left. Yeah. 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 And, you know, for our purposes, for intervals, you know, I just always tell them the lowest uh, note that accidental is furthest to the left, the upper note, it's closest to the note. Mm -hmm. Um, When we get to triads, I didn't know exactly all of that. So, but I still just tell them, you know, I... I don't really specify where the middle one should go. Mm-hmm. I tell them the top and the bottom and say, so you just have to make sure they're not overlapping. Mm-hmm. Same as notes. You know, if you're writing a second, yeah. you, they have to touch, but they can't overlap or nobody knows what note it is. Yeah. yeah. And there are all sorts of rules for which way the second should go in a chord cluster. Uh, but let's not dive into that crazy, <laughs> craziness. Yeah. These are the kinds of things, you know, I was, I was talking with, um, who was I talking with about this recently? Oh, it doesn't matter. I was talking with, with someone about this. Maybe it was it Yulia. I was talking about, you know, these rules and how maybe anymore these rules don't matter as much because largely uh, we're all working with music notation programs and they will help us arrange the accidentals and, and do all those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, unless you're going to become a professional music typesetter or right. someone who programs notation programs like, you know, me, then you probably don't need to actually know these kinds of rules. Yeah. Well, you know, I have um, Sibelius. My copy is very old, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, it still works. And um, in the manual that comes with it, they even say something about, you know, don't worry about that. Sibelius knows how to do it, and you're better off not even thinking about it. You know, we'll just do it for mm-hmm. you. Yes, yeah, notation yeah. programs have become our calculator. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I and I am so glad for it because I I remember having to look up the rules for which way the second should go when I was writing seventh chords as an undergrad. And yeah. Yeah. We spoke, uh, I guess about a month and a half ago now with Melissa Hoag, uh, who wrote a chapter on putting the music in music fundamentals in the Rutledge yeah. companion. And, uh, one of the things I loved about your chapter on accidentals in the companion was that, uh, that you give us two, two really great examples uh, of pieces that show almost all of the edge cases and likely places for confusion in accidentals. Um, Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata and uh, Chopin's Nocturne in D flat major, opus 27, number two. I, I thought it would be great if you could uh, take us through these rules that you outline 
uh, along with some examples from the Waldstein, uh, from the Waldstein. and uh, I'm here at my piano, so I can uh, pluck out some of these as we uh, as we chat about them. Does that sound like a good plan? It does. It does. Um, and as I'm sure you you know uh, are very familiar with. One of the biggest issues is time. And mm -hmm. so the more you have to flip around to find different examples, you just waste a lot of time. So I honestly don't remember what came first. Um, if I just happened to notice doing, because I've used the Waldstein for lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, if if I just sort of noticed all the different accidental usages. And so I thought, Bingo! This yeah. is this is what I should do. And it's and it's it's a it's a great piece. For, if listeners don't know, I'm just going to play a little bit of the beginning to kind of get Please into our ears. Do. Does it sound good? Okay, here it is. And so on and so forth. I, I often call this the climb every mountain sonata because <laughs> the opening progression is the same, right? Climb every mountain. Oh, how funny. <gasps> right. <laughs> <laughs> I never realized that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, for music theater that's lovers great. out there. Yeah. So, and it's, and, and, you know, and it's also got what I really like mm -hmm. is the descending tetrachord progression yes. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, and there's so many wonderful things about the, the second theme of the sonata, right? Normally, of course, a sonata, this is in C major. Normally a sonata in C major would have a second theme in G major, but this sonata has its second theme instead in E major, e major. which means Beethoven's writing, you know, normally you'd be writing just an F sharp in your second theme, but now Beethoven has to write a right. ton of accidentals. So it makes sense that this is a perfect choice for this. Yeah. And because it's in C major, you're not dealing with a key signature. You have to think about, is that just canceling out mm -hmm. something in the key signature or is that adding something in? So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, even just in the first page or two, you can find so many things. I always start in measure two with the F sharp. And I say, you know, there's... Um, it's on the fourth beat, the first eighth note, mm -hmm. and it's repeated. And I say, you know, here's an example. Once you write an accidental, it's in force for the whole measure in that register, on that line or space, in that clef. Bar line cancels it out. If you want, so that's why you don't need to write it twice. If you wanted F sharp in the next measure, you'd have to write it again. Um, then in measure four, there's the little grace note, and we talk about what a grace note is, and it's a C sharp, and then immediately it has to be canceled out. So we have that or C sharp, we have, and then we have C natural. And again, here we are only in measure four, but I can already tell them or ask them because what I do too is I play in measure two. I play those as F naturals. Mm. Maybe you want to do this. Yeah. And then F sharps to say, listen to the difference. What if Beethoven wrote F natural? Mm -hmm. So here it is with F natural, not what Beethoven wrote. Oh, that feels so weird. Yuck. <laughs> mm -hmm. And here it is with yeah. the F sharps. Yeah. So already, you know, I introduced the concept. I mean, we can't get into secondary dominance in a one semester course, mm -hmm. but the concept of a leading tone is going to keep coming up. So as you know, with accidentals and, you know, what's the difference? You know, the F sharp is pushing more strongly to the G. G is on a downbeat. It makes a nice strong arrival right on the downbeat. Similarly in measure four, it's a little grace note, but it's a half step below D. It's a, it's leading to D. It's a leading tone. And then it gets canceled out. If you play the C natural for the grace note, not as good. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, then in the next measure, well, there's our flats. Oh, and guess what? You know, we have a B flat in two registers, so we must include a flat in both registers. Yeah. And so However, this is, so this is so just so we so we have if we just rattling the chords, we have this C major chord at the beginning, then we have a G major chord with B on bottom, and then the kind of third big chord of this piece is this B flat chord you're talking about in measure four. Yeah. Where we have B flat, F, B flat, and indeed Beethoven notates the B flat in both octaves. It's not enough to notate it just once. Yeah. And I also just point out, you know, like, can you hear the music? It seems to be just being pulled down because mm -hmm. the B flats don't fit in C. But anyhow, so yeah, you've got two B flats, one in each register, and then you don't have to write them again for the rest of the measure because they're in force till the bar line. When you cross the bar line, oh, he has to write them again because mm -hmm. now we're in a new measure. Looks just like the previous one. So, you know, we talk about that um, I, by, <clears throat> by the time I get to measure, what is this going to be, 10, um, you know, we see that in the right hand, there's a B natural and it's the first note of the measure and there's no flats or sharps in the key signature. So why in the world did Beethoven actually really the typesetter, the copyist, whatever, why did they put a B natural there? And, you know, we look back and say, oh, well, you know, two measures ago, there was a B flat in the right hand and this flies by. Mm -hmm. And when you're playing that fast, you might not remember that B's are naturals. You just played a B flat one second ago. So this is saying, hey, wait, caution, courtesy. I'm doing you a favor. I'm telling you, no, 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 no. Play the B natural. Don't play the B flat again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've now introduced, you know, we're still only in measure 10 and now we've introduced cautionary accidentals. Um, and, and interesting so, to note as well that um, a, a misconception I see a lot is is the belief that cautionary accidentals have to be notated in parentheses. Parentheses, and, yeah. And, and they don't. They can be notated just as normal accidentals. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you I mean, I read some. Oh. No, please go ahead. I read something very interesting about, and I've read a lot about notation, mm -hmm. and um, something I hadn't thought about, and it's really the same in language. It's really the the editors, the publishers, typesetters who really have determined what notation should look like or what how how punctuation and language should be used because it does have to be consistent and if you know beethoven is in one place and you know someone else is somewhere else and they have no interaction whatsoever you know one person could notate things one way and one person could do it another way so it really has to be up to the publisher to make sure that when they publish music, it's always going to be consistent. Mm -hmm. So, yes, um, it is true that sometimes there are parentheses around cautionary accidentals and sometimes there are not. Yeah. So that's not completely uh, consistent. Mm -hmm. You mentioned... But uh, no, there doesn't have to be. As we, were, as we were just starting to chat about the Waldstein, you said it has a descending tetrachord progression. And we've just, we've yes. just heard that first beginning part which is the is that moment can you can you just talk about what the descending tetrachord is and some people might know yes, this as, as a lament base as well yeah and that's what i always call it because that's one of my favorite things my whole thing about the omnibus progression is it's coming out of this lament base so we start with c for two measures then we go down to b for two measures then b flat for two measures then a then A flat, and we uh, go A flat G, A flat G with, you know, an ending on the dominant. So that is that chromatic descent in the bass. Going through a fourth, otherwise known as a tetrachord, yeah. Right, yeah. right. I think often called um, the lament bass because, uh, because, well, we see it in especially in the Baroque Every era lament. in, yeah, in, in lament songs, Dido's lament probably being the most famous example of that. 
Yeah. And in fact, I'll just also add as an aside, we have an early music ensemble Mm -hmm. and um, I'm the founding director. And so uh, on our concert just a couple weeks ago, we did uh, uh, Monteverdi's Lament of the Nymph, which is a beautiful piece, if you know that. I played the little harpsichord part and you know the the shepherds uh, are are the bookends of the piece, and but the the main lament sung by the nymph, the left hand it's just that descending bass the entire time a g f e over and over mm-hmm. and over again, and I've looked at lots of laments in baroque aria uh, baroque operas, and you know they all I mean they might go like a you know, uh, G sharp, G, F sharp, F, or just A, G. I mean, what am I saying? You know, they might go chromatically or diatonically or or a little of both, but, um, pretty much they all do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My other favorite one is hit the road, Jack. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know if you know, Ellen Rosand, she called it the emblem, the emblem of lament. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, no. I'm, anyhow, she wrote about it, yeah. too. You, you, you mentioned another word, which I'm betting many people will not have heard, which is the omnibus progression, which is this wonderful... Uh, 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 sorry. You got Don't it. try and play an omnibus while talking. Which is this wonderful, reversible, crazy chromatic progression. Can you maybe just say a little bit what that is? Well, um, they are dominant seventh chords. Uh, well, you have to voice them so that when you are playing them, you have, if you're going outwards, the right hand is going up, the left hand is going down, that two voices are moving chromatically like in a wedge by half step, and then uh, they change voices and then two of the other notes are moving outwards chromatically and that keeps going and um, you will eventually come back to your original chords and then there's always a minor 6-4 chord stuck in the middle of every two uh, dominant chords <laughs> Excuse me, and it's a great, great progression and um, I found that because or I, I wrote about it because I had been doing some research, you know, long ago. And I, I think it was something in Haydn and somebody was writing about, you know, this crazy progression. And I actually already knew a little about it, but it had not been written about much at all. And so I thought, oh, well, that's, that's the omnibus progression. And then, then as I looked further, I thought, wow, there's not many people who seem to be aware of this. And they talk about it like, you know, it's just, oh, this is this very chromatic progression here. And so it's in tons of, I mean, lots of people have now written Mm -hmm. about it. But um, that's how I started getting into it. And um, you can also substitute diminished seventh chords for some of the dominant sevenths. Mm -hmm. And uh, Don Giovanni, uh, the opera, has a passage like that or a couple passages like that. Um, So it's great. It's great. It's the bus to anywhere. You know, you can go to any key from there. (laughs) Yeah, because it repeats at minor thirds, effectively, right? And so, yeah, yeah, and you pass through. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that's a delightful progression. And I think you start, once you sort of know it as a thing, you start hearing it all over the place, right? Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like Beethoven, especially, I I think, like um, the second movement of the Fifth Symphony, uh, which is the beautiful cello, a cello variation movement. Yeah. And then he gets us over to C major. Sorry. So he goes to an A flat dominant seventh. Uh, right. And then but then he turns that the into C an major. argument in six to C major. Exactly. Yeah. I'm very 
very impressed. So you can play all these things off the top of your head. I, that's you know, that's, I I uh, I grew up listening to a lot of Beethoven. But but what I was thinking about is when he gets back from C major because he does that same theme: do do re mi do re mi mi fa sol mi fa sol sol la si si la re si la re si la re a re mi fa fa, fa sol la fa. And then we're back to A flat, right? But it's it's just it's it's that classic. Yeah. Uh, motion and oh my gosh, oh my gosh! In the context, I can do it, and then I forget, right? Uh, oh, to E major to the passing six four to the diminished seventh to the dominant seventh, like wedges us back to A flat yeah. major. Yeah. Anyway, they they are they are all over the place, and they're just they're delightful. So. Uh, okay, this is a, a lovely diversion from our uh, <laughs> from our various, lots of accidentals in there. <laughs> tons of accidentals, yeah, yeah, um, you, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's another one. These these third relationships in Beethoven, right? A flat major to C major, uh, up a major third, and similarly in the Waldstein, uh, C major up to E major up. They are just all over the place in these wonderful yeah. ways. So, um, and that's that's what allows so early on. It's like measure forty two or something. I have these measures more or less memorized. Hmm. Um, well, I'm off forty five. No, I'm right forty two, forty three, um, where we get the double sharps, the mm -hmm. F double sharps, because we're going to E major at that point. You know, there's many other things that have already happened that I would be pointing out. Mm -hmm. But yes, if you were going to G major, there would be no F double sharps. So in, in that moment, on that we hear, it's, so it's basically, the, the second theme is this motive. Yep. And then the second time Beethoven does it, it's decorated with these lovely triplets. And in that moment of decoration, we have this beautiful E major chord. But we have this little lower neighbor, and he, so it's G sharp on top. But Beethoven doesn't spell this middle note as G natural. He spells it as F double sharp instead. Mm -hmm. And and the reason for that is he's decorating the G sharp because it is an E major chord, um, and it's acting again as that little leading tone. Mm -hmm. Another thing I point out, which I really think for many of them connects more, is I say, all right, let's renotate this. We're going to have G sharp, G natural, G sharp, A, G natural, G sharp. G. How many accidentals are we going to need for those six notes as opposed to hmm. one F double sharp? That really connects with them because that's when they're all right away going, oh, uh oh, you know. So, um, yeah, it just makes it a lot cleaner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, which I, I, I've always found, you know, introducing double accidentals in a fundamentals class and inevitably students say, wait, do we actually need these? Are these real things? You're making this up, right? Surely you're making this up. Um, uh, but, you know, what a, what a beautiful example of, oh, no, no, we're not making it up. And, and yeah, it is so much easier to read than had we used single accidentals for that passage. Yeah. And, you know, one of my big things in teaching theory is to always explain the why, not just, well, here's an example. And then we can look over here and we can see how he, you know, uh, does something else over here. I always want to make sure I explain to them why, because it, this is a pet peeve of mine and, you know, you, you might not want to include this, but, um, when people say things like, well, he could do it because he was Bach. I, I just, it drives me crazy because I say, no, there's a reason for it. There's a musical reason. You just don't understand the principle behind it. It's not because Bach said, oh, I don't need these rules. I'm going to do what I want. I mean, that's just such a total misunderstanding. So I try to make very clear or, you know, people very often say, well, Debussy used parallel fifths and octaves. Well, but that means you don't understand why 
we say you shouldn't use parallel fifths and octaves. It has to do with individual voice parts. Debussy is writing just, you know, sort of sound color chords. He's not writing individual voices when he's got parallel chords. So it's a different effect altogether. It's a different musical reason. It's not just because a composer can is allowed to do it because they're good, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I always, as much as possible with the limited understanding they may have at any given moment, try to make them understand there's a reason for all of this. It all makes perfect sense as you learn more about it. I tell them it's kind of like math. Many people see math as being a beautiful thing. And I said, I see theory as being beautiful. The more you know, the more you can appreciate so um, one example that I love that you pull out is when, in one measure, we have an accidental say spelled as an F sharp. And in the next measure, we have it spelled as a G flat, which seems like a waste of ink, right? But, <laughs> but can make a lot of, uh, a lot of musical sense. Um, I think it was around measure 125, which is over in the development. It is. It's 125, 126. Yeah. And so in this moment, this is, this is where I played through the exposition last night, just to remind myself of it. I'm going to play very slowly this moment in the development. So we've got this E flat minor chord. And then this F sharp dominant seven. Which goes to B minor, but that's, but that wonderful moment of and then this almost sounds like movie music to me every time. Just the, <laughs> that that shift. Um, yeah, I think especially you know in uh, yeah in context we are really hearing that as E flat minor. Once right. we've heard the F sharp major, at least for me, retrospectively, I hear that E flat minor is D sharp minor instead. Right, and it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's an enhar, you know, true enharmonic change mm-hmm. there. That's again beyond my students, you know. So I, all I say is, well, this is this chord here, you know, it's spelled this way here, and then the next measure he wants an F sharp chord, so he has to spell it according to what notes fit in each one of those chords. Because we have our basic triad spelling rule, it's got to be every other line or space note, every other letter name, because again, it's got to be consistent. That's what a triad is. So that's how he has to spell it. Yeah. That's- so I can't get into, you know, anything about enharmonicism with them, but yeah. That's always fascinating. But you but you preview it in a you preview it in a nice way by by looking at those passages and yeah. Yeah, and in fact I was going to mention when you started talking about the second theme, mm-hmm. so measure uh, 35. Um, there's a good example in measure 36 actually of a B sharp. And again, the idea of like Do we really need a B sharp? Why can't we call it a C? Hmm. Well, if you look at the other notes, it's a G sharp triad. And the the triad rule is every other letter name. So if you had G sharp, C, D sharp, people wouldn't know what that is. So you have to spell it. Yeah, this is is that. So at the beginning of the second theme, this chord where we have G sharp, B sharp, D sharp. Yeah, and if it appeared as G sharp, C natural, D sharp, it would look very strange to our eyes. Yeah, and again, you want notation to be as easy as possible for everyone to read and play without having to learn something new every time they play a new piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I also love, you know, this is this is a piece that obviously you can come back to many times throughout theory studies, right? And of course, we get the classic descending thirds progression here slightly altered otherwise known as apocalypse bell canon progression or descending five six right <laughs> but but that on the fourth chord of it instead of a boring you know minor three chord we get this 
actually in the case of Beethoven, a dominant seventh there. That's really yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, Paula, this is this is great. I mean, I, th I think, you know, one of the things that I came away with from reading your chapter was, oh, here's, you know, I don't, I can, I can um, make these concepts so much more concrete now. If I, especially, you know, if I introduce them uh, with, say, Waldstein right alongside, and then you, you give us that second example of the Chopin um, D flat major uh, nocturne, Opus Twenty Seven, Number Two, that um, that has almost all of the same sorts of things. And I was just thinking, like, what a what a beautiful in a way lesson plan you've written for the next time I'm introducing accidentals that I can do the Waldstein and Thank then you. say, here's the Chopin and find an example of all of these things and. Yeah. And why, you know, why are these notated that way? So what, it's just a beautiful lesson plan. Thank you. Well, and the Chopin, you know, has a few things the Beethoven doesn't, mm -hmm. um, like the, the double flats, but also um, it's, it's much thicker yeah. and it has things that the students have simply never seen. Um, let me see. Where where do I have my Chopin? I thought I had it all pulled up in front of me. <laughs> um, you can tell me the measures, maybe. I, but where I don't you have my have, Chopin for up in front of me. I'm getting it now. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, where you have, for example, uh, uh, in the right hand, the pinky, you know, is playing the same note. We'll say it's a B flat and, um, the inner voice is coming up chromatically and that would be a B natural against it. Mm. So again, the accidental only applies in the register. And here's a case where you actually would have like a B flat against a B natural. And then several measures later, you have an A sharp against an A natural in the same register. So of course, you've got to have both of those accidentals. So those are things you wouldn't find in the Beethoven. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and, and, and uh, the other thing of course about this piece is it has a key signature uh, which the first mood of the Beethoven doesn't have. And so that brings up some other challenges of, of canceling out accidentals in the key signature, using a natural to cancel right. out accidentals in a key signature. Whereas in the Beethoven, the natural is always returning it to the key signature. Right. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's been fun chatting about accidentals. Uh, we also, in, in email, we're chatting a little bit about um, a, a way that you teach rhythm using rhythm clocks. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I love my rhythm clocks. <laughs> it's a perfect device because with 12 hours on a clock, you can divide them in half and thirds and quarters. And so I use chopsticks. I have a little video posted and I teach them tapping patterns. I use Takadimi and counting syllables. And I tell them, you got to do both. Takadimi is great for learning individual patterns. But if you're playing with someone, you have to count. You have to be able to stay together. And so... Um, I start out just by saying, you know, a beat isn't just an articulation point. A beat has a duration, just like a minute has a full duration of 60 seconds. We can have a half a minute and a third of a minute and a quarter of a minute and so on. And beats are exactly the same way. So instead of numbers on my clock, um, well, I have numbers, but then I put like on the outside, the Takadimi syllables and on the inside, the counting syllables. And oh, I have so different clock, clocks. So each clock represents one beat, basically. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so one clock is just uh, ta at the top and D at the six. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know, so, and I talk about it in seconds. So it's 30 seconds for the half a beat and 30 seconds for the second. Ta is 30 seconds. D is the other. So you wouldn't say ta D because you have to hold it for the whole 30 seconds. <laughs> if you're playing a note and you let it go, the conductor's going to say what happened, you know? So you're holding it for that full duration. And then, you know, I can divide and then we say one and two and, and then I can divide in three parts, kind of, you know, like a peace sign, 20 seconds each. And that's going to be takida, takida. 
kid, uh, one triplet, two triplet. We divide in four parts. We get our takadimi or one eanda. And then especially for showing unequal divisions like tadimi, tadimi. You know, ta is the first 30 seconds. The second 30 seconds is divided in half into dimi. So I like to do as much visual stuff as possible. I, I teach a lot um, in uh, approaching things visually because it really helps. In fact, I, I'll even give you a, a different example that just happened yesterday. I teach intervals differently than probably the majority of people. I don't teach them as no, you know, numbers in the scale from one to three and all that. I do everything starting by looking at the keyboard and looking at the white notes. And I say, for example, all of your white note seconds are major except E to F and B to C. Those are the minor. I mean, once we actually talk about intervals, those are the minor seconds. So if you know your white notes, and there's only seven of them, you can figure out any second. You know, if I put C and D, I know that's a major second. If I raise them both to a sharp, well, then I immediately know that's a major second. I don't have to think like, oh, wait a minute, that would be in the key of C sharp and what's got a sharp on it and what doesn't. That's a lot of steps to go through. So anyhow, yesterday was our last day of class. And, you know, some of my students, again, they have some background. And um, I said, I just want you to know that the way I've taught you intervals, I do the same thing with triads and scales. And um, I said, you know, there's another way that you would read if you looked at most theory books, and this is how they do it. And it just seems to me you're taking way too many steps and you're not really seeing it. And this one kid spoke up. He said, that's the way I originally learned it. He said, this way is so much easier. So, um, and, you know, I know I, when I was listening to, I don't remember if it was Lee or Melissa, um, talking about, I think it was Lee, the connection with math mm -hmm. yep. and actually Nancy Rogers wrote an article and I cite it in something that I wrote that really the best predictor is pattern recognition ability, mm -hmm. which is very important in math. So just in case, in case, in case listeners haven't heard that episode, uh, when we spoke with Lee Van Handel, oh. uh, she, uh, she spoke about how uh, the SAT or ACT math scores turn out to be a really strong predictor, even stronger than uh, like a typical music fundamentals placement test of how students will do in a theory curriculum. Right, right. So to recognize, I mean, music is all about patterns. You know, I tell my students, every major scale is a transposition of C major. So if you see C major on the keyboard, you know where the half steps are. You know your white notes can all be transposed up and down and you just keep the half steps and so on. So it's that ability to recognize patterns that, you know, whether you look on the keyboard or then on a staff, that's really very helpful for students. So I try to do everything with a visual component first. And now I've forgotten the question you actually asked me. <laughs> we, were talking, we were talking about rhythm clocks, but what a beautiful, what a, what a, yeah, what a beautiful insight. Yes, because it's visual. Yeah, into teaching yeah. intervals and triads. Yeah, yeah. And so now you started yeah. to say you use chopsticks and I was very curious, how do the yes. chopsticks relate to the rhythm clocks? Okay. So, um, I teach my students to conduct and of course I teach them to conduct with the right hand with chopsticks. We're using two. Uh, so we have to use both hands. I, st the, the beginning of the beat is always on the left hand. And I say, if you're in marching band, what foot do you start on? And they always say the left foot. And I say, okay, so we're going to start our beat always on the left hand. And so I tap on the board, but I also have a video. And so for example, toddy would be, I tap down, toddy, toddy. Uh, so that's so for, our, yeah. So for our listeners, um, with your left hand, you're tapping ta on, on the desk and you're tapping yes. D uh, with your left hand, you're tapping your right hand, holding a chopstick. So you're alternating tapping yes. the desk and then the right hand chopstick, but the right hand is just standing it's, there. It's just sort of yeah, waiting to yeah. be tapped by the left right. hand. Right. 
Right. And then if I'm doing Takida, same thing. I'm just holding the right one there and I hit down with the left Takida and I tap on the right chopstick twice. Takida, Takida. They're fine with that. Takadimi is really hard. So I do it very slowly because I say, okay, you got to tap down with the left. Now tap down. The right has to do something. Now you tap down with the right. Uh So we've got ta you come back up with the right you're hitting underneath the left and then you go back down so you're going (laughs) that one is really tough for them to do but when they get it because I said when you do it fast it's fun and so they do like to do that they have to get it but then when they get it they really like it so um, so we do uh, you know again it's a one semester course There's no time. I mean, I wish we could do oral skills, but there's simply no time. So the only oral skills I do is with rhythm. And I tell them, you know, you got to feel rhythm. You don't read about rhythm. You feel rhythm. And I make them march and things like that. I don't make them do proto notation. I've tried that and it's way too difficult because it really needs practice. And some of them are just very uncomfortable because, you know, they're they're not music majors. They don't want to have to, <clears throat> you know, notate something. So I do that, but I show them like if we're doing Yankee Doodle, you know, I'll have them march and I say, okay, I'm going to recite it. You just march where you feel the beat. Well, I'll start on our left foot. And, you know, everyone, of course, marches exactly together. And I say, look, it's like magic. You all hear the same beat. And then, you know, I say, okay, now, as we recite it, how many syllables do you hear per beat? Yankee doodle when they realize that each beat had two parts to it. And then we can toddy our way through it. Toddy, 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 ta, ta, with my frog in my throat. So, and then I can show them in proto notation what it would actually look like. So I give them enough that for those people who actually want to learn how to do it, they can see it and they can always you know, and sometimes I post things for them. I say, you can try and do this on your own. Um, but I, I don't require it because when I did, it was really a, kind of a disaster. So I thought, okay, okay, I'll do it, but I'll show them how. But I do go through lots of nursery rhymes because they all have very similar repeating patterns, whether it's Humpty Dumpty or Yankee Doodle or Baba Black Sheep or One a Penny, Two a Penny, you know, so that they can at least feel with a tapping pattern what that rhythm feels like. And then they can look at it too and know, okay, when I see if I'm in, I mean, this obviously later after we've now talked about time signatures, if I'm in four four because I actually start this like right on day two just to start feeling patterns without any big explanation so if I'm in four four and I see four sixteenth notes oh that's takadimi takadimi so they know what that rhythm feels like they know what it sounds like um I wish I had some training like that when I was uh first in college because when I encounter, I mean, I, I played piano, but if I came across a difficult rhythm, I mean, I could sit and sort of mathematically figure it out, but I didn't know what it sounded like, you know? So this is great that they can hear the sound of these patterns, feel them, actually produce it just with chopsticks or some, some kids have drumsticks, you know, but... So, yeah, I like my my rhythm clocks. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And if you're okay with it, we may post a little video of your demonstration of the chopsticks for people to see. Would That's that be okay? Fine. Awesome. Great. We'll do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, Paula, this has just been really delightful chatting with you. I feel like we could pick any topic from Music Fundamentals and you would have wonderful tips for us uh, on on how to teach that. Just clearly, you're coming from a, a wealth of experience doing that. And, and I so appreciate your taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you so much. I would, you know, anytime if you want to talk more about any of those topics, I'd be happy to do it because I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> 
And, you know, again, to piggyback just on something that, again, I think it might have been Melissa when she talked about putting herself in the student's position in terms of what they know and don't know. Um, having taught for as long as I have, you know, I've encountered probably most of the common errors that anyone is going to make. And so you figure out not only how to correct it, but why are they making that mistake? So that I try to get always to that underlying reason and how, what can I do to um, preempt that mistake before it even happens with anybody? So I've thought about those kinds of things a lot. That's, that's great. That's, uh, yeah. And thank you for sharing them really. So. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I love to talk about theory. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. So do we. Uh. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, U-Theory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. Create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach.